Last week, we had a passage in Ephesians that Dennis, or some of you know as Doc Ock, uh, walked us through, that could be mistaken as a series of moralisms, you know, kind of like personal moralisms and kind of like, you know, good dog, bad dog, like don't be bitter, don't slander, don't be angry, don't have malice, and someone could be forgiven for reading it that way. But that's not actually the thought process that's running behind that passage. What's running behind that passage is more what Paul has been showing us, you know, week after week now as we've been studying this, um, that this is all an act of God's grace. And that when God picks us up as a body, like a, a lump of clay in the hands of a potter, This is just the kinds of people he's making as he makes a people for himself. That all of the yous in here, as Dennis and I were talking about last night, they're all plural. They're not singular, now you, make sure you are being good. It's more this, what that God has coveted himself to us in a way that can never be shattered. And that as he works with us, this is the kind of people he's making. So now when we get, if you'll look in your bulletin, please, to the first couple verses here of Ephesians 5, we see in a sense a principle that, you know, Paul kind of introduced this whole idea, then gave us those bitterness, slander, anger words, and now he's wrapping it up again with the principle that simply is something like this, be kind, be forgiving as God forgave you. And the big idea here is the idea that we often talk about, about family likeness. You know, like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. Uh, To be a bit more theological, we might talk about image bearers, that God is calling us to bear his image. And this is very important, because no matter what we do to get a paycheck, uh, no matter what we might think of as our day job, and no matter what we might think of as kind of the routines of our daily life, we really each one only have one vocation. When we use the word vocation, we tend to think of things like jobs. But really, vocation translates a Latin word, vocare, which is a deeply personal word. It means calling. It's more like asking somebody out on a date. It's a deeply personal, warm, and relational thing in which we're invited into a relationship of which what we do to get a paycheck is just one part. An important part, obviously but also just like being a member of a family, a member of a church, a member of a community. It's not what is the the cohering one big idea. The big idea that's supposed to make coherence of all of our life is this notion that we have a vocation to adequately, appropriately, uniquely, and creatively, because we're all unique, reflect the Father's likeness. This was his intention from the beginning. It's what he was doing in Adam and Eve, And it's what he's doing all the way up to today. And what I think we need to see in a passage like this is that everything about God is livable. That nothing is merely abstract. Nothing that Paul writes us is meant to be conceptual or ideal in the sense of idealistic, like, gee, wouldn't this be wonderful? But everything about God is livable. It's not just truths to be filed away in our mental head, and then so once we've got the truth, we've got it. Now again, once we say this, we have to be careful to say that when I say it's livable, that's meant to be an invitation, not a moralism. (laughs) 
then we just have to stop that. We have to stop reading, especially these Pauline passages, like they're road signs, like a stop sign. It's not what's going on here. It's that you're being invited into a relationship, and that relationship makes this livable. So there's a real gospel pattern that we see in the New Testament. For instance, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, your kingdom subjects now live like it. Well, that's sort of just like saying you move to France. Start acting like a French person. Learn the language. Learn what it means to be in this new French community. See, it's an, it's an invitation to a new reality more than it is God putting something on you. In fact, think with me. One of the toughest things Jesus ever said in the New Testament was said to a group of people who misunderstood this. And Jesus said to them, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, you teachers of the law, you heap heavy burdens on people and don't even lift a finger to help them. So Jesus is actually radically against in any way reading this kind of stuff as any kind of a moralism. It's not something that we put on ourselves. It's a reality that we're invited to live into. So there's a gospel reality, and then there's a reality in church history, probably best seen in the famous book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. The book was written in 1420, and other than the Bible, most people believe it's the most read, the most important bit of devotional literature in the last 600 years that nothing really stands up to it. It's a classic. And what Akempis essentially says in this little book, helping us understand what Paul's saying here about imitating God, Akempis says that through silence and solitude, we learn to focus on our interior life. And in so doing, we develop a contempt, and that's really an important word. We developed a contempt for what he calls the vanities of this world that's all gonna pass away. Now, again, as soon as I say that, I always want to insert one little correction. We are not dualists. When he says learn to learn, when he says we're going to learn a contempt, he doesn't mean a contempt for this world as in material things. There's an important little adjective, the vanities of this world. We're not dualists. Christians are not dualists. We don't think the material world is bad. We don't think our bodies are bad. That's not the point. It's that there are vanities connected to the world. And in this sense, the world means, the word world here means, all those things that exist in rebellion to the rule and reign of God. And there are, there are vanities attached to that. And this is what Akempis and Paul and Jesus are asking us to walk away from. Through seeking inward peace, purity of heart, a good conscience, learning to moderate our longings, to reorder our desires, to seek patience and submission to the will of God, to seek the love of Jesus, the ability to endure the loss of comfort, to learn to take up our cross. And again, haven't said that, it's so important to say, I think in our world, that this is not intended to lead to a worried, anxious, paranoid sort of life, like when you're cramming for an exam in grad school or something. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is a way of being. And as I've said a couple times, and I know Dennis did last week, What's really going on here is a participation in what God is already doing. It's his covenant love. It's always his initiation. It's his mercy and his grace that we're giving ourselves to when we give ourselves to this one vocation. 
if a campus has kind of a secret sauce, like, you know, if you make a really good recipe, Debbie's always uh, being asked for recipes, or people always want to know Tom's recipe for salsa. So if you want to know sort of the Akempis secret recipe here, it's something like this. This is what people love about Akempis, is that he leaves us with the imagination that nothing will make us happier or please us as much as being obedient to God. That when it's all said and done, that is the secret of human happiness. So this is what Jesus is talking about in our gospel reading this morning, if you want to look at it again. Live out this God-created identity the way the Father lives towards us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind, you be kind. And so Paul, of course, picks up this thought from his master Jesus. So that, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, he says to them, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, follow my example, for we apostles are models to you, and I'm simply passing on to you what I received from Christ. So now if you look closely again at the Ephesians passage, Paul commends to us two things. Forgiveness, a kind of self-forgetting kindness that leads to forgiveness and to love. Now, when I say a word like kindness, you might think, well, that sounds kind of weak. Meaning, how is kindness in any way central like if Paul was going to sort of summarize what he's been saying to us in the letter so far about God's initiation and how it works out in our life wouldn't he say something really strong like I don't know some big theological word or something kindness just seems kind of a little wimpy thing to say except for if you'll just think about it with me here for a moment it's actually central to everything about God and everything about Christianity. It's actually at the heart of any kind of relationship, and it's at the heart of any kind of forming of a community. Just think about it this way. So we're, we're talking about kindness here. So let's think about the antithesis, the opposite of kindness. What if God was always making snide, rude, bitter, or vulgar comments about us? What if behind our back in the councils of the Trinity, God was being mean instead of kind? Would you pray? Could you pray to a person like that? Would you worship a person like that? Of course not. And this is why kindness is not wimpy. I don't care what talk radio says. It is not wimpy. It is core to who God is. What lies behind his grace and his mercy in these big theological words is this very plain word, kindness. The capacity to overlook. And if you think about it, what would worship and prayer be like if we thought God was constantly putting us down and losing his temper? being unkind. And if you think about it even further, wouldn't human life be better, all of human life be better, if we in fact imitated God? So now let me say to you, maybe one of the most important sentences I've said to you in three years. There is a reason that we don't imitate God this way. 
and it's because we find other models more compelling. It seems good these days to be tough. In fact, you can't even gain a hearing in today's culture without being pretty much a jerk. If you don't think so, watch cable news or listen to talk radio. Or look at columns that are even written in, you know, the newspapers of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. Just read an editorial these days. You can't even get a hearing without being unkind. If you're not being ruthless, your soundbite doesn't matter. No one has patience for the kind of nuance that's rooted in kindness that says, I want to be fair to this person. Our world's too quick, and we have to come to grips that that's one of the vanities of the world that draws us in, and if we're not careful, if we don't live in a contempt for those vanities, then we end up taking that on. It becomes a model that actually becomes more attractive, more normative to us than what's being commended to us in the model of Jesus, in our gospel readings, and in what Paul's saying. So we end up thinking that going with the flow, being ourself, being free is a good thing. But I want to suggest to you that can actually, it can be a bondage. Especially just going with the flow is a bondage when it comes out of what Jesus would call a heart of anger or spite or hatred. Going with the flow, being yourself, is only a virtue when one has become the kind of person whose freedom is the overflow of a heart of kindness and forgiveness. Well, now keeping it real is a virtue. But if you're keeping it real as a fundamentally angry, spiteful person, there's no virtue in that. Just keeping it real is neutral, kind of like saying flame. I could do a lot with a flame, harm or good. So just keeping it real is nothing until you attach something to it. And then one has to ask, is my keeping it real, is my freedom a virtue or a vice? So the core idea here that I think Paul wants us to get is this. In your little queendom, or in your little kingdom, in your own little sphere of reality, act there the way God does in his. That's the big core idea. Well, again, how does he act? Generously and graciously even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind, so you be kind. And then secondly, Paul commends to us, if you look at your text, forgiveness. A kind of big-heartedness. Now, let's just, again, for the sake of keeping it real, let's just stop and ask ourselves, why is this so hard? Why is sort of innate kindness and habitual forgiveness hard? And there's probably a lot of reasons, but one I'd like to suggest to you this morning is this that this is something only the rich can do. Now, I don't mean something that only people who can write big checks. But let's use that just as an analogy. If a Little League kid comes to my door and, you know, wants two bucks for a candy bar so he can help buy his uniform, Debbie and I are likely to give him two bucks. You know, these days, two bucks, at least to us, is hardly anything. We just give him two bucks, have fun. But if somebody came to the door asking us for $2,000, that would be a whole different deal. We don't just have $2,000 sitting around in a change jar, you know, that we could give to somebody. We'd have to think about that. We're not that rich. We couldn't do that act because we're not that rich. And so the people who forgive easily are rich in their own forgiveness, really rich. 
so that giving away forgiveness to somebody is just kind of nothing. You know what I mean? It's, it just it flows out of them. It's just kind of nothing. People who can be kind are people who are rich in kindness. They have recite, received the kingdom of God, sorry, the kindness of God so much, and then they begin to give it away, as Jesus said one time, and when you give, you receive more, such that then it just becomes this overflow out of you. And this is very important so that we don't, again, turn this into a moralism and something that we end up striving to do rather than to becoming a kind of a life. And then the, the Paul tells us, importantly, that we're to forgive our enemies. And the gospel reading tells us this. And, of course, there's a gospel tradition for this, that God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. And what Paul's trying to tell us here in the gospel tradition is we might spare our friends, but God spares his enemies. Our Father lives generously and graciously towards us even when we're at our worst. So looking at your text again, Paul says, walk then in the way of love. Not like I love chocolate, I love the outdoors, or I love this dress. That would be walking in the way of our likes, right? Like I don't love German chocolate cake, not in the sense of I will, it's good. I want to destroy German chocolate cake. I want to first cut it. And when I'm done cutting it, I want to destroy it more with a fork. And when I'm done with that, I want to destroy it with my molars. I don't love it. I like it. Love means to will the good of. And so what Paul's commending here and what Jesus commends is walking in the way, that is to say, in the way our feet ground us in our life, what love ground us in our walk with God, to will the good of others which is marked by, he says, loving and forgiving as Christ loved and forgave us and gave himself up for us. So John, you know, Jesus' beloved friend, puts it this way. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, this is not an abstract idea. This is a grounded thing. It's a walk. It's particular. See, love means nothing in the abstract. Love can only be particular. Love means to will the good of the thing loved. Without the thing, without the person, it remains abstract. And this kind of imitation, I would suggest to you, was fundamental to what was happening between Jesus and the 12. So it's something like this. As we pretend like a child pretends, we then begin to take on the life of God. So a little girl or a little boy stands on a step stool at the sink while mom's doing dishes. And that little child learns the law of dishes, of soap and rinse and sponge and dishwasher. And that, that child over time takes on the life of the parent. A little boy or a little girl follows dad out mowing the lawn and, and learns the world of weed eaters and these loud machines that are scary and disorienting but they come into this new world. That's all that really is in view here. And of course, what you've heard me do is I kind of boil this all down to the journey outward, sorry, the journey inward and the journey outward. That we're taking on a new life in ourselves as we just partner ourselves in this one vocation with God. And as we do so, that automatically makes us become the kind of person for whom our reign would fall on the just and the unjust. Our kindness, our forgiveness, would fall on our friends and our enemies. 
So as we come to a moment of quiet here, I want to read to you uh, from the message, our passage this morning from Ephesians. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Amen.